And in the text that we're going to cover today, Habakkuk hears God's reply to his first lament. He hears the severity of the punishment. And he really says, whoa, whoa, whoa. Hold on a minute, God. This is not what I was asking for. Habakkuk is perplexed to an even greater degree with God's answer to him. And in our text today, it's Habakkuk's follow-up to God's first response. So if you're in Habakkuk, we're going to begin reading in verse 12 and go through chapter 2, verse 1. Habakkuk, in reply to God's announcement of severe judgment, says, Are you not from everlasting, O Yahweh, or O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, You have ordained them as a judgment, and You, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings them up out with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury, and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. Habakkuk's response here to the Lord is instructive for us as we try to live by faith in a fallen world when it seems like wickedness thrives. And first we see here from Habakkuk, uh, point number one, a creedal confession where he affirms what he knows to be true about God. And then we see point number two, a course correction where Habakkuk corrects his thinking, his feelings according to God's Word. But there's still then, point three, a continued confusion regarding the judgment of God. And then finally, we'll see a contrite calculation where Habakkuk, he's evaluated his own thinking and he's considered what will come next from God and he's expecting a further answer from God regarding his perplexity. So, just to give you those again, point number one, a credal confession. Point number two, a course correction. Point number three, a continued confusion. And point number four, a contrite calculation. So again, what are the faithful to do when faced with perplexities regarding the times that we live? When it seems as if the wicked prosper and they're never going to be judged? What are the faithful to do? We turn to God for answers. And Habakkuk provides here an example of how to approach God when coming to Him for answers. Again, point one, we see a creedal confession. This is in verse 12. Let me read it again. Habakkuk says, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. 
O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. See, when Habakkuk's perplexity deepens, when he's even more confused about what God is doing, he turns himself to remind himself of what he knows to be true of God. He confesses and reminds himself of what he knows to be true. And he begins here with a rhetorical question, really confessing the greatness and the transcendence of God, the otherness of God. He says, are you not from everlasting? Everlasting is a Hebrew word there that refers to before history began, prehistoric. He is the God of God, the Lord of Lords, the one who existed before anything else. And then Habakkuk invokes the covenant name of Yahweh once again. This name Yahweh is the God who proved Himself over and over to be a gracious God, a merciful God who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love towards His people. And with the double usage of this word in verse 1, it seems to be an emphasis on God's personal character, who He is. And Habakkuk affirms what he knows to be true of God from reading the Old Testament, that He is a merciful God, slow to anger. He verbalizes that here. He confesses that here. He affirms it. This is how we know Habakkuk is faithful. Because he begins not with what he's unhappy about or perplexed about, but he's centering his thoughts on the one that he knows can do something about it. The one that he knows is the true God. And in faith, he then reasons from there. Regarding the covenant name of God, uh, Barker and Bailey in their commentary, they say this, and I quote, Habakkuk used the covenant name of God in his address. The I am who I am from Exodus 3.14 is the God who promised to be with His people. As God has been in the past, He will be in the future. The covenant name indicated eternal faithfulness and should elicit confident dependence from those who call on the name of the Lord. So Habakkuk, he is confessing his confident faithfulness in Yahweh. He's using this name, invoking this name, to show that he still has confidence in Yahweh's faithfulness, even after he has just declared that he's going to exile Judah and destroy Jerusalem. We see Habakkuk's faithfulness, his confidence in Yahweh, in the midst of such a horrible announcement of judgment. But after using these transcendental terms, Habakkuk uses the personal pronoun my twice. He says, my God and my Holy One. And there's a bit of an oxymoronic element or a paradoxical element here because The word he uses for God is El Elohim, which refers to the Mighty One of the universe who is all-powerful, who sits enthroned above the earth. He invokes the name of Holy One, who is totally set apart from all creation. Both of these words are picturing God as transcendent, high above Him. The Mighty God who sits enthroned above the earth, the Holy One who is totally other from his creatures, these transcendent references 
Habakkuk says he uses them, and then he says, but he is mine. He is my God, my Holy One. He's expressing his faith and his confidence in his God, though he does not understand. There's a couple other things to note here as well. First, Habakkuk is humbling himself before God. He is not saying, you know what, God, I've got a bone to pick with you about the lot in life that I have received. He's humbly approaching his transcendent God in a very personal, imminent way. He is mine. And the second aspect of this is that Habakkuk, his faith is revealed. Habakkuk draws near to God instead of backing away from him. What do believers do when they are hit with the full force and the reality of God's judgment? What do unbelievers do with the God of the Old Testament? They say things like, God of the Old Testament seems like a tyrant. He just violently destroys anybody who crosses him or anybody who disobeys him. Many even professing Christians say, my God would never do that. And they point to the Old Testament. But faithful Habakkuk, when he's hit with the harsh reality of judgment, does he say, the God I know would never do that? No, he does not. In the face of horrific judgment, Habakkuk draws near, <clears throat> draws near to God and clings to Him with the phrase, My God, My Holy One. Habakkuk is also confessing that Yahweh remains righteous and pouring this judgment out upon His people. He's blameless. And God's holiness draws the faithful in to fear Him, while at the same time the unfaithful are driven away to their peril by saying, I can't believe in a God who would do that. Such unbelief, these unbelievers, they make themselves the judge of what is right and wrong. The faithful, however, tremble before God, trusting in His good hand of judgment even when they don't understand it. And that's Habakkuk here, turning towards God. Even after hearing a horrendous judgment that God is about to bring on them, he turns to his God rather than away. And Habakkuk in the next line, the third line of that verse, he seems to turn his focus off of God and onto the faithful. He says, we shall not die. But really, this is just another comment on Habakkuk's faith and trust in Yahweh. Uh, one commentator, Michael Shepard, says of this, and I quote, the intended statement in this half verse, that's where he says, we shall not die. The intended statement in this half verse seems to be that, God, that God's true people, those who believe, will not die precisely because their God has always existed and remained faithful. Thus, there's a clear distinction of three groups in this passage. The true people of God, wicked Judeans, and the foreign nation. 
And the statement, we shall not die, is a statement of Habakkuk's ultimate confidence in God, even if the temporary future looks bleak. And from a theological standpoint, Habakkuk's view here, they, what he says here reflects his firm grasp of covenant truth. That is, despite Israel's pending doom and their destruction, God will remain faithful to His promise. To His promises to the patriarchs, to His promises to Israel, to the house of David. Habakkuk's comment here, we shall not die, is just a further expression of his faith that God will save some through this horrendous judgment. He continues to believe that Yahweh will keep His covenants. Habakkuk trusts, even being exiled to another land, Israel being plucked out of the land, he believes that Yahweh will remain faithful and preserve a remnant of his people and keep his covenants. And with a second invocation of the personal name of Yahweh, he says, O Yahweh, you have ordained them as a judgment. As a judgment there is actually immediately following the name of of Yahweh, but the translators change it otherwise. It sounds like Yoda. It literally reads, O Yahweh, as a judgment you have ordained them. And this is the same word used in verses 4 and 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 7 where Habakkuk said, Justice never goes forth. He recognizes that justice is coming forth from God in the form of the Chaldeans. In other words, Habakkuk believes the unbelievable report of what God is going to do. And then he confesses his trust in God's Word that he ordained them as a judgment. And even as hard of a truth to accept as God destroying your beloved nation, He believes God at His Word. Habakkuk next uses another word that is commonly used to refer to God. He says, And you, O rock, have established them for reproof. Rock is used metaphorically throughout Scripture, commonly uh, to refer to God meaning a place of protection, safety, and refuge. And John Hartley says of this, and I quote, Yahweh is a rock, not in being represented as an idol carved from stone, but in that He is totally reliable. He is a sure source of strength and He endures throughout every generation. And another commentator says, the image of God as a rock conveys His faithfulness to protect and establish His people. The Lord is the immovable rock on whom all our hopes are safe and secure. And again here, Habakkuk seems to be using paradoxical language, like my Holy One. Yahweh was their immovable rock in whom all their safety and security was. It is in Yahweh. This One, Yahweh, who is their safety and security, He is the One who is bringing the Chaldeans to destroy them. This is like saying, my 
head of security for my house, for my estate. He went out and he found some robbers to break into my house and ransack it and take my children away. He's invoking that name Rock, saying Yahweh is all our safety and security. And yet this is the one bringing these people against us. So there's this apparent contradictions in terms here. Do you see why Habakkuk would be so perplexed? What Habakkuk is confessing that he doesn't quite understand is that Judah's source of security is bringing the destroyer against them personally. And though he does not fully understand how to, make, how to reconcile these two things, he does know in part why God's doing it. We talked about this last week. And it's in this very verse, he established them for reproof. See, God is a gracious God who desires to turn people away from their foolish sin. And sometimes, maybe you can identify with this, sometimes some people need to be hit over the head really, really hard for God to get their attention. God had sent prophet after prophet after prophet calling Israel to repent, and they didn't. So this is God's gracious way of turning them away from their sin. Habakkuk understands this here. Yahweh is graciously sending this judgment to turn the wicked Judah back to Him. Habakkuk understands that Yahweh does have the good of His people in mind. He says it's established. It's a word that refers to laying a permanent foundation. It's used in Isaiah 28, verse 16, to speak of the cornerstone of the faith, essentially Christ as the cornerstone of the faith. Psalm 119 says God's Word is established from eternity. And so as sure as Christ is the foundation or the cornerstone of the faith, and as sure as God's Word has been set in stone, so is the certainty that Habakkuk knows this judgment has been established by God and it is coming. It's for turning the people away to show them the right way. So Habakkuk takes what God told him in the previous section and he confesses his belief and trust in God's revealed Word. Even though it's perplexing that the source of Judah's security brings about their destruction, he still confesses his belief in this God and that he is holy. He's still guiltless of any wrongdoing. And so when we are perplexed about the state of things around us, when it seems like all is lost, when it seems like the wicked triumph over the righteous, the faithful continue to confess what they know to be true of God. And the faithful, they draw near to God. They draw close to the Lord and they cling to Him in faith, seeking understanding. Even when reality didn't make sense to Habakkuk, he continued to trust God at His Word. When we go through trials or, or even collateral damage in the punishment of the wicked, or we live in a world that's taken over by heathens, we wonder where God is, we confess the same things about God that Habakkuk does here. And if we are faithful, 
We will draw near to Him and continue to confess such faith. And the faithful will continue to conform their thinking to the Word of God, not according to the world. So, we see here from Habakkuk a creedal confession in verse 12. And then the beginning, the first half of verse 13, point number two, we see a course correction. A course correction. Look at verse 13, the first two lines in verse 13. You who are of pure eyes then to see evil and cannot look at wrong. When you confess what is true, you correct your feelings along the way. Look back at chapter 1 and verse 3. Habakkuk said, Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? We noted this a couple weeks ago, but Habakkuk is pouring his heart out in verse 3, and he feels as though God is idly standing by, watching injustice happen. He isn't doing anything about it. Habakkuk feels and thinks that God is not doing what he should be doing. And that justice goes, injustice goes unpunished. But after he receives the Word of God, the Word of God corrects his wrong thinking and feeling. And after he confesses his trust in the Word of God and recites the confession in verse 12, his thinking and feelings are corrected. So in verse 3, he feels as if God is letting sin go, but now in verse 13, he has corrected this wrong thinking and feeling, and it says, you are of pure eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. So he's pouring his heart out to the Lord in verse 3 and feels as though God is standing idly by, but here he has totally changed the way he's thinking. That word for look is the same as the word for look in verse 3 that's translated as idly looking at wrong in verse 3. And it should be rendered the same way here. It's the same exact word. So he's totally changed his thinking. He says, you cannot look at wrong. Cannot is the verb that means to be able. He says God is not able to look at wrong. It's an imperfect verb with a certain negation, which means it's totally absolute. He recognizes that Yahweh is never able to let wrong go. He can never idly watch sin. So Habakkuk in the same chapter, he repudiates wrong thinking. He changes to align his thinking with the Word of God. He takes God's Word and he conforms his thoughts and his feelings to it. There's a very important principle that I want to stop and expose here. And that is, if you change your thinking, your feelings will follow suit. Americans are a very uh, emotive people, especially younger generations. And they're often taught from the world around them that whatever they feel is true and their emotions are the most accurate gauge of what is real and true. And that one should not, you particularly should not and cannot control your feelings. And if anything, it would be inauthentic to try to change your feelings. 
and certainly harmful to ask someone else to change their feelings. Listen, as Christians, we are commanded to think and to feel according to God's Word. Jesus commands your feelings. If Jesus is the Lord, if He is sovereign and Lord over every aspect of your being, He commands you to feel a certain way just as He commands you to think a certain way. For evidence of this, what is the greatest commandment? Deuteronomy 6.5 is repeated by Jesus Himself in Matthew 22.37. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And in summary, we are to love the Lord with our entire being. But even if we just take that term heart, biblically the heart is the inner man and it's made up of the intellect, the will, and the emotions. So if the emotions are part of the heart and Jesus commands our heart, then He commands us to feel a certain way. I learned this from observing Travis and Melinda with their kids, but when our kids are not obeying, we remind them that they need to obey right away, all the way, and with a happy heart. Because what do you get when people obey without a happy heart? You get a bunch of Pharisees. We require them to change how they feel about emptying the dishwasher. Whatever it is that they don't feel that they want to do, we make them change the way they feel about that. Because we require the same kind of obedience Christ requires, including their loving with their emotions. But this requires a lot of work on our part as parents, because emotions are not easily changed. And these verses in Habakkuk help teach us the principle of how to align our emotions with reality. How can we go from feeling like God is letting so much injustice go unpunished and feel like He's just idly watching wrong? How do we go from that to feeling and thinking rightly? That Yahweh could never idly let sin go. That He must punish every sin. How do I get my daughters to happily unload the dishwasher or take out the trash or whatever it is. To get someone to change their feelings, you have to access the heart. The inner man is the intellect, the will, and the emotions. You have to access the heart through the mind and their thinking. You appeal to what they know and what they are thinking. For my kids, and this really goes for anybody, I remind them of God's command to honor and obey parents. And work from there. Appeal to them from the authority of God. And when they understand God's good command, and they still aren't happy about it, I continue to appeal to their thinking. You aren't happy to empty the dishwasher? Are you happy to have clean dishes? Would you like me to put all your food outside on the sidewalk for you to eat off of? Remind them of all the good things the Lord has blessed us with that they should be happy for even if that means those good things don't clean themselves. Most of it entails the speaking of God's goodness and how He has 
poured His goodness out upon us. Most notably, in the salvation that He has provided for us. Sometimes this process takes minutes. Sometimes much, much longer. Because emotions are not easily changed. But using the Word of God to correct thinking results in the change of emotion. The inner man made up the intellect, will, and emotions. They're all tied together. And when you change someone's thinking, their will changes, their decisions change, and their emotions change. And here in Habakkuk, Habakkuk is doing what we would call he's counseling his own heart. He's a biblical counselor to himself. He's confessing what he knows to be true in order to keep thinking correctly. When he feels that God is doing nothing, he reminds himself of God's holiness. That he cannot endure wrong. When he struggled with the fact that his source of security, the rock of Israel, was bringing an enemy to destroy his town, he didn't doubt Yahweh's promises, but he trusted that he purposed good through this process. Psalm 15 speaks of the one who's a true believer and such a one is characterized by speaking the truth in his heart. That is to say, the believer continues to speak truth to himself within his heart to remind him of the truth of God's Word. And especially when you are struggling with particular truths, maybe the judgment of God, Counseling your own heart by reminding yourself over and over again of the truths of God's character, His promises. Reminding yourself of what He has said in His Word. That's how you bring your thoughts and your emotions into alignment with reality. Our emotions are not things that are uncontrollable, as the world says, though they are without the truth of God's Word. But we have the truth of God's Word. That's exactly what we see Habakkuk doing here. He struggled with his thinking and feeling like Yahweh was sitting idly by watching wrong. Yahweh corrected him with His Word. said, no, I am most certainly not idly watching. I am preparing the Chaldeans. And Habakkuk turns right around and confesses the truth of it. And as Habakkuk continued to be perplexed and struggle with wrong feelings, he would remind himself of the truths that countered his feelings. And as believers, it's a very important principle to learn that if we submit our thinking to the Scriptures, if we embrace it wholeheartedly, our decisions and our emotions follow suit. Wrong emotions spring from wrong thinking, and right thinking produces right emotions. So we saw Yahweh's word evoked a faithful, creedal confession from Habakkuk, followed by a course correction in his thinking and emotions. But even with the answer he received from the Lord, there was still, point number three, a continued confusion. A continued confusion. He trusted the Lord at His word, but he was still confused as to how God could do this. And so, after he corrects his thinking, he still pours out his perplexity to the Lord in a humble way. Look at the second half of verse 13 through 17. Why do you idly look at traitors? 
and remain silent when the wicked swallow up the man more righteous than he. You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings them all up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet. So he rejoices and is glad. Therefore he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? So Habakkuk's perplexity here is that he totally believes the report that God has given him, that God is bringing them upon Judah for judgment, and he's asking, is this just the perpetual state of humanity from here on out? And in particular for Israel. So Habakkuk, he's corrected his thinking, but he's still struggling. He's perplexed and feels like there's a contradiction with a holy God using a nation more wicked than Judah to judge Judah. And this is another truth that's good to remind ourselves of. We are going to correct our thinking and our feelings in one moment with the Word of God, while in the next, we're still going to struggle to think rightly. So this is going to be a constant battle that we're going to have to continually correct our thinking with the Word of God. Of God. But here Habakkuk is struggling with how can a holy God who takes sin so seriously, so seriously he would exile the nation of Judah, how can he use a more wicked nation to judge them? Would not God's holiness require him to judge them first? If the Chaldeans are more wicked, doesn't that require a holy God to judge them first? First, we need to ask. If Habakkuk is right in thinking that the Chaldeans were more wicked, were they really more wicked than Israel? We're going to talk about this more next week. But yes, they were more wicked. Yes, every sin against God is worthy of eternal punishment because God is an infinitely holy God and perfect in every way. And the smallest sin is an infraction against His holiness. Even the smallest violation of his character demands eternal punishment. We mentioned this last week, James 2.10. If you just break the law, you fail the law in just one point, you've broken the whole thing. But the Old Testament, and therefore Yahweh himself, he recognizes that there are some sins that are worse than others and worthy of the death penalty. Among those is premeditated murder disobeying parents, striking parents, and a whole host of other sins that Yahweh said, when the people among you do this, they are to be put to death. So there is worse sins than others, though all of them are deserving of eternal punishment from God. So Habakkuk was not wrong with his thinking here. His assessment wasn't wrong. The Chaldeans were going to go on a violent rampage of bloodthirst, seeking to devour anyone in their path. They were on a whole other level of violence compared with what Habakkuk lamented about in the first chapter, beginning in the verses 2 through 4. But Habakkuk still struggled with this. He still maintained in his continued confusion that Yahweh was holy and pure, blameless in his dealings, but he still struggled with how can God do this? 
crying out to Yahweh, how could you use such a wicked nation to judge us? That's one thing that Habakkuk struggled with. And I'm not going to give you the answer to these because Habakkuk had to wait, so so do you. You've got to wait till next week. You probably don't have to wait as long as he did. So that's the one, one thing that Habakkuk struggled with. The second struggle that he expresses here was that this holy God who laid out a created order in society in Israel, he struggled with how Yahweh could seemingly subvert the created order. Look at verse 14 and then I'll explain this. He was struggling with what he saw was Yahweh subverting the created order. He says, you make mankind like the fish of the sea. Uh, You make mankind like the fish of the sea, uh, says Michael Shepard, and I quote, this is reminiscent of the narrative of Genesis 1.26. And he quotes Genesis 1.26, And God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness so that they may rule over the fish of the sea. And by saying that the Lord makes mankind like the fish of the sea, the prophet is suggesting that judgment at the hands of such a foreign nation is a subversion of the created order. Let's look at the description of what the Chaldeans are going to do, and then we'll come back to this point. In verse 15, he brings them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet. So he rejoices and is glad. The hook, the net, the dragnet, they're all common tools for the fishermen, all designed to rake in the fish of the sea. While a fisherman can certainly never get all of the fish, Habakkuk here speaks of this fisherman hooking all of the fish. That's how thorough they're going to be. They're going to scrape every last one of them out of the ocean. The hook, the net, the fishing net, the dragnet, they all refer to the means which the Chaldeans employ in order to subdue and destroy the nations. Luther interprets it this way. He says, These hooks, nets, and fishing nets are nothing more than his great and powerful armies by which he has gained dominion over the lands and the people and brought home to Babylon the goods, jewels, silver, and gold, interest and rent of all the world. End quote. So they're gathering up all the goods, the jewels, the silver, the riches of the world. As we noted last week, it's to the ends of the earth. That word for gathers there is the same word in verse 9, referring to the Chaldeans gathering captives like sand. The Chaldeans are going to raid the world and dominate all lands and peoples and take the wealth, including the people, as slaves back to Babylon. And as this great enemy does, he rejoices and is glad. In the ESV it says, so it's probably better understood as a therefore, taking into account that they're the dominant power, they have all the world's goods, therefore they rejoice and are glad. And rejoices is in the present tense, in the, at least in the ESV, because it's an imperfect indicating continual rejoicing. This word denotes being glad or joyful with the whole disposition of the per- person, with the The heart, the eyes lighting up, the soul. 
And glad is another word that's most often translated as rejoice, but it means to shout in exultation. It's predominantly used in the Psalms referring to rejoicing in song. And so these people, based on all their conquering, all of their conquests, and all of the riches that they have gathered in, they're rejoicing with their whole being, singing out their praises to their God. Therefore, the logical next step in verse 16, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. So the word sacrifices there refers to uh, slaughtering an animal. Offerings refers to the incense that they would burn to rise up to please the senses of the gods. But one commentator notes, he says, each time these two verbs are used together, it is invariably involving pagan worship in an almost fixed formula of condemnation. Therefore, simply by his choice of words, Habakkuk is condemning the Babylonian practice as idolaters. I mean, that was in, back in uh, Leviticus when I was listing things that people should be put to death for. Idolatry is one of them. Habakkuk is just listing here all the reasons that these people should be put to death before the Judeans. They're inherently wicked. They've done so many things to violate God's law that deserve death. And it's by all of these violent things that he lives in luxury. Luxury, it's an adjective in the Hebrew which is used to convey the idea of prosperity and well-being. And a close synonym is that next word down there. His food is rich, luxury and rich. Close synonym. That synonym, bari, has reference to physical fatness and also to well-being. So you have a picture here of a ruthless, tyrannical nation whose worship is based on destroying more and more societies and people. Their worship requires them to continue to cut down nations like they're harvesting a field. And Judah is just one of those many fields or lakes that are going to be fished out completely. And because Habakkuk sees this threat, and the Chaldeans, obviously, their, their desire is to continue to conquer, to satisfy their own desires and hunger. He asks in verse 17, Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? Yahweh revealed, we mentioned this last time, that the Chaldeans cannot be stopped. No king or ruler can stop them. No fortified city can stop them. No fortress can stop them. And Habakkuk is perplexed here and asks if this is going to be an ongoing state where the whole world is under the oppression of a tyrannical ruler, even a nation-state as Babylon. And the reason Habakkuk is struggling to accept this is because it is a subversion of the created order. God created man in His image and told them to be fruitful and multiply, to rule over the creation, subduing it for the good of their flourishing. And a tyrannical ruler who treats mankind like the lower creation, raking men in like fish in order to continue advancing his own might and self-worship, 
is a reversal of how God designed things to be. God created man to live in a society where he was free to rule creation, to flourish, to be fruitful. After the fall, he set up societies where men were free to flourish under the law, particularly in the Old Testament, with God as their king, and even establishing governments to punish the wicked so that the righteous could flourish. Habakkuk was struggling with the fact that God's judgment was going to subvert the created order and that they were going to be enslaved and oppressed. I mean, just imagine God prophesying, He doesn't do this anymore, but prophesying that this nation was going to uh, go back to slavery and people were going to be subjected to slavery. And we all recognize the horrendous and inhumane nature of that. And Habakkuk here is told by God, he's taking his beloved people and enslaving them. How can part of God's judgment be to subvert the created order like that? How can God bring something about that violates his good design in creation? And I just want to draw a parallel to our time, really, in order to say that there's just really nothing new under the sun. The people of Habakkuk's day were subverting the created order, rebelling against God, turning things upside down. And really, in the same way, our country has been handed over to her sins, just like Judah was in Romans 1. All men are. And God sent conquerors into our land, just like He did the Chaldeans into their lands. But in our land, it's in the form of wicked ideologies. As they conquer hearts, the created order is subverted. And we can have the same lament here as Habakkuk. We look around, we see men and women inverting the created order. Confused as to what men and women are. We can lament the same thing Habakkuk does here. Is there any end to those caught in its net? Will it mercilessly continue to kill forever? Habakkuk says, God, how can you do this? That's the question Habakkuk is struggling with here. And it's next week that we will hear his answer to Habakkuk. But, before we go, as God's people, what are we supposed to do while this merciless, violent, ruthless, ideology and other evil ideas that gather captives in our country like sand, what are we to do? And Habakkuk offers an example for us here for how we are to think about this. Habakkuk anticipates waiting for an answer. He describes what he will do and how he anticipates Yahweh is going to respond to him. So point number four, we have a contrite calculation. A contrite calculation. And I don't really like the word calculation. It's too cold, but it fits my doubly alliterated outline, so I had to keep it. But you can think more of an eager expectation. But he's humble, he's contrite, an eager expectation, a contrite calculation. He considers the situation, and he calculates that Yahweh will answer him. And that there is a righteous answer to his perplexity. So look at chapter 2, verse 1. 
He says, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. So he first says, I will station myself, take my stand, station myself. Station myself is a verb that really indicates Habakkuk has no intention of leaving his post until he hears God's answer. I'm stationing myself. I'm sitting myself down. I am not going anywhere until I hear from God. That verb for look out, it's a verb that refers to keeping watch, much like a soldier would keep watch as he is on duty. It's in a a form that means he continues to do so. He's intently looking. He's continually looking, setting his eyes on the Lord, waiting for his answer. There's a couple observations we can make from this verse. First, Habakkuk was eager to hear Yahweh's answer to his problem. He was expecting an answer and he was eager to hear it. He waited with eager anticipation, looking intently for it. He believed there was an answer and he was going to find it. Are you perplexed concerning the world you live in? As you see things in this life that don't seem to match up with what you know about God, well, what do the faithful do? They position themselves. They station themselves to look intently for the answer to their questions. Only we don't sit on a tower waiting for Yahweh to give us the answer, like Habakkuk. We have the full counsel of God's Word right here. All the answers we need to the questions in this life are in this book. That's what makes the Word of God sufficient. That's what we mean when we say the Word of God is sufficient for life and godliness. 2 Timothy 3.16 We don't need anything else to answer the hard questions of life and how to live in this world. But we, as New Testament believers and Christians, We don't sit and wait for God to appear to us in some mystical sense to give us the answer. What do we do? We dig into His Word and we look for the answers that we have. You station yourself somewhere. You look intently and you be determined, as Habakkuk was, not to move until you have the answer you're looking for. And we gaze into the Word of God. We study it in order that we might think rightly. So we station ourselves, we plant our feet, we're just as eager as Habakkuk was, and we don't have to wait. We can jump right in and find the answers we need. There's another thing that we can learn from Habakkuk, and I'll give you the punchline up front and then explain it. The second observation here is that we should expect to be corrected when coming to the Word of God. Habakkuk says, I look out to see what he will say to me, and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And I'm not a big fan of the ESV here. My complaint there, that last word for complaint, it's the same word used above in verse 12 for reproof. It means to rebuke or to correct. And the ESV changes from reprove or correct because otherwise it sounds like Habakkuk is reproving or correcting God. So complaint's not a great translation of that, but they're trying to make sense of this, but it refers to a rebuke or a correction. However, Habakkuk 
is not the subject of the rebuke or the correction. He is the object of it. And if you have a King James Version or an NASB, you're already ahead of the game. King James Version says, I will answer what I shall, what I shall answer and when I am reproved. And the NASB says, when I am reprimanded. It is not, as some have said, Habakkuk talking back to God. This would totally violate the sense of verse 12 and everything else in Habakkuk. Habakkuk is not talking back to God. Rather, Habakkuk knows that his thinking and his feelings on the matter are in need of further correction. And so Habakkuk waits patiently, anticipating that when Yahweh answers, he will be corrected. And this is how we should always approach the Word of God. We should always approach receiving God's Word ready to be corrected. When we're perplexed about life and we don't have the answers, and we think this doesn't make sense, we come to God's Word expecting to be corrected. Not coming in just to reinforce what we already think, but to come for correction. And particularly for a people growing up in a society where God's world has been, the created order has been subverted in so many ways, we have to continually approach God's Word ready to be corrected, expecting to be corrected. We don't approach the Word of God as if we know everything. We should expect that when we hear the Word of God read and preached, it's for our correction. When we're studying it for ourselves, it's for our correction. So Habakkuk here, as he's waiting for God's answer, he's extremely humble and wise. This is something that we can all emulate. It is the posture of those who are faithful, who approach God asking questions about things that don't make sense to them, that they don't understand. That's the posture that we approach our God. How do we live in a world where violence and destruction of families is everywhere, where creation order is being subverted on every corner, where the unjust and the wicked seem to prevail over the righteous? What are the children of God to do? We continue to confess what we know to be true. We draw near to God, not shrinking back from Him. We correct our wrong thinking and feelings according to the Word of God by constantly speaking the truth to our own hearts, by constantly speaking the truth to one another. Ready to be corrected. And we continually pursue God in faith, waiting on Him Intently looking into His Word as the only source of hope and truth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I cannot imagine uh, the turmoil that my soul would be in if I was in Habakkuk's place. Hearing the horrendous judgments that You have in store for him and his nation and no doubt his family and friends the weight that that would be on the soul, the struggle that that would be thinking that you are the rock of Israel, the source and security, and yet that's you who's brought this upon them. And yet Habakkuk is faithful. He cries out to you, but you correct him and he receives your correction. He takes what you say to him and he repeats it to his own heart that you are a good 
God who does all things for your glory and for the good of those who love you. And may we as believers in this life, when we are perplexed, when we struggle in life, may that just be a constant refrain in our own hearts of reminding ourselves that you are a good God who does good. And your concern is for your glory and the good of your people. And as we struggle with things that are happening in our life, I pray that we would turn to your word, that you would, uh, by your spirit, guide us to the answers we're looking for and the things that we need to hear for our own minds and hearts to be corrected. We pray, Lord, that we would be faithful, that we would not. No one sitting here today would turn and say, my God would never do such a horrible thing as we see his judgment. But rather, may we be like Habakkuk who only draws near to you and clings to you more and more. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.